Today's Bible reading is from John chapter 16, verse 4 to 15. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because the people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the Prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will not speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. This is the word of God. Hi everyone, my name is Adam and it's so great to have you join us today. For the last couple of months we've been in a sermon series called Untroubled Hearts. We've been exploring Jesus' final words to his disciples. Now I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit sad that the series ends next week. I've found it personally so encouraging, so refreshing, so convicting to study these chapters. To see Jesus' heart for his followers. To see what really matters to him. I mean, we've looked at some pretty significant topics in these last few weeks. So we've looked at our relationship to Jesus. He is the vine, we are the branches. We've also looked at our relationship to one another. We are to love one another. Last week, we looked at our relationship to the world. Though we will be hated by the world, we have also been sent into the world. Today, we are going to look at our relationship to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God. Now, Jesus has already spoken a bit about the Holy Spirit, but here he expands upon what he's already said. And he tells us that the Spirit will be doing two main things both in the world and for the church. Now, before we look at those two things, let me set it up this way. Have you ever noticed that when an influential, charismatic, significant leader leaves an organization or a group, that organization or group will often go backwards or fall away? So, for example, Alexander the Great At the peak of his power, he ruled over almost half the known world. But then, at the age of 32, he got sick and he died. Now, what happened to his empire? Initially, it got split up into four parts, but eventually it fizzled out. Let me give you a more recent example, and one that is close to my heart. The Brisbane Broncos. Now, the once mighty Brisbane Broncos just haven't quite been the same ever since Wayne Bennett left the first time. What about Jesus Christ? Jesus of Nazareth lived a little over 2,000 years ago. And so what has happened to the group that he founded? 
What has happened to his group of followers since he left? Well, according to 2015 figures, there are an estimated 2.3 billion Christians in the world today, which makes up about 31% of the world's population. And the fact is, Christianity continues to grow. Maybe not so much in the West, but definitely in other parts of the globe. And so the question is, how do we explain this? How do we explain the spread and the growth and the continued growth of Christianity even after Jesus has left? Well, I don't think we can put it down to the ingenuity or the brilliance of the disciples. In fact, a little later in the story, after Jesus has returned to heaven, some people will look at the disciples and describe them as common, uneducated men, which is what they were. Even here in this moment, they are confused and afraid. Jesus says in verse 6, they are filled with grief. I mean, they are hardly in the frame of mind to be scheming and planning a worldwide movement. And what's more, it wasn't even on their agenda. I mean, in this moment, they are totally concerned about themselves. This is Jesus' point in verse 5 when he says to the disciples, none of you asks me, where are you going? See, they weren't really concerned about where Jesus was going. They were mainly upset by the fact that Jesus was going. Now, they have already asked this question, but they're not interested in the answer. They're just upset that Jesus is leaving them. It's kind of like when I leave home sometimes and my three-year-old son Knox will say to me, Oh, Dad, where are you going? He's not really interested in where I'm going. He's mainly upset by the fact that I'm going. It's the same for the disciples. They're so consumed with their grief, their fear, their anxiety, that they're not really thinking about where Jesus is going or what it means for him or them. And so we have to ask the question, if we can't attribute the explosive growth, the amazing resilience of Christianity to the brilliance, the planning, the scheming of the disciples, then what can we attribute it to? Why did the church grow even after Jesus left? And why does the church continue to grow to this day? This is an important question, and it's one that has puzzled secular historians to this day. But in this passage here in John 16, Jesus gives us the simple but profound answer. He says, it is because of the Holy Spirit. It's because Jesus has not left his people alone, but he continues to be at work. He continues to be with them through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. This is what he says there in verse 7. He says, but very truly I tell you, It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Once Jesus goes, once he returns to heaven, he will then send, pour out the Holy Spirit. Now, why is it that Jesus has to go away before the Spirit can come? I mean, can they not coexist in the same place at the same time? Well, of course they can. But it's only once the work of Jesus is complete through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension, that the ministry of the Spirit can commence. Because the primary work of the Spirit, as we'll see, is to point us to Jesus and all that he has done. It's kind of like when you're building a house. If the builders show up to build it before the foundation has been prepared, it's not going to work out. 
In the same way, Jesus has to lay the foundation. He has to go to the cross. He has to rise again. He has to pay for our sin so that the Spirit can come and then build upon that foundation. And this is actually why Jesus says it's even good that he is going away. Now, I bet that the disciples did not agree with him in that moment. And maybe you don't even agree with Jesus. You might have preferred if he hung around, if if you were able to see him and, and talk with him face to face. I mean, what could be better than having God with us in the person of Jesus? Well, according to Jesus, the answer is to have God in us through the presence of his spirit. Jesus, of course, was limited to being in one place at one time. But the spirit dwells in all believers in all places at all times. The spirit will universalize and internalize the presence of Jesus. And so the question that we want to wrestle with today, explore today, is, well, what is the Spirit doing? What has Jesus poured out the Spirit upon his people to do? And in this passage, Jesus tells us that the Spirit will do two main things. He says what the Spirit will do in the world and what the Spirit will do for the church. And this means that Jesus is speaking to all of us today, whether you're a Christian or not. God wants you to know what he is doing for you by his Spirit. And so the two main ways that the Spirit is at work that we see in this passage is this. Number one, firstly, the Spirit will prove the world wrong. Secondly, the Spirit will point us to the truth. Let's look at these two things. Firstly, the Spirit will prove the world wrong. Now, it's not fun to be proven wrong, is it? Think about the last time that you lost an argument or the last time you declared something to be fact when, in fact, it wasn't. I mean, we don't enjoy being proven wrong. And yet Jesus here says that this is exactly what the Spirit is doing in the world. The Holy Spirit is proving that the world got it wrong about Jesus and the world continues to get it wrong. Now, what exactly do we get wrong about Jesus? Jesus tells us in verse 8. He says, When he comes, when the Spirit comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin, about righteousness, and judgment. Now, before we dig into this and, and have a look at what this means, let me just say that this is not an easy passage. I mean, I wrestled with this passage this week. It kept me awake at night. D.A. Carson, who is one of the the greatest living theologians and a bit of an expert on the Gospel of John, he says verses 7 to 11 is one of the most baffling passages in John's Gospel. R.C. Sproul, the renowned theologian, in his commentary, he says, frankly, I'm not certain what this passage means. (laughs) So we're just going to do our best today to discern what Jesus is saying to us. And what Jesus is saying is that we get, or the world gets wrong, sin, righteousness, and judgment. So firstly, let's look at sin. Now, sin is the word that the Bible uses to summarize what is wrong with us and what is wrong with our world. Now, if you asked people, what is wrong with our world? What has gone wrong? I'm sure they could give you a a long list of many things that are wrong. And I'm sure a lot of them we would agree with. But I'm not sure that they would have on their list what Jesus has on his list. I'm not sure they would agree with Jesus' definition of what is wrong in our world. 
Jesus gives it to us in verse 9. He says, The Spirit will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin because people do not believe in me. In other words, what is wrong with our world is that people do not believe in Jesus. This is what Jesus said last week, and this is also what we read in the first chapter of John's Gospel. In chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, we read the true light, that's Jesus. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. In other words, when God came among us and when God became one of us, when we got our hands on God, as it were, we did not recognize him and we did not receive him. We killed him. We condemned him as a criminal. We declared him to be wrong. And this is the greatest wrong in the universe. This is sin. You see, sin is not just doing wrong things. It's not just doing naughty things. Sin at its deepest level is our rejection of God, our rebellion against God. It's our wrong attitude towards God. And this is what the Holy Spirit helps us to see, that sin is deeper than we ever dreamed. The Holy Spirit opens our blind eyes, softens our hard hearts to help us see our sin of unbelief so that we might turn to Jesus and put our faith and trust in him. I mean, this is exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost when the promise that Jesus makes is fulfilled, when he pours the Spirit out upon his followers. We read there that Peter, one of the disciples and apostles, he stood up and he delivered a rip-snorter of a sermon. I mean, this was his conclusion. Listen to what he says. He says, Let all the house of Israel, let all the people of God therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, that's not the usual way that a sermon ends, is it? I mean, that's a little bit more forthright than a poem and a prayer. But what's the result? Verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. They were convinced of their guilt. Their sin was exposed. And thousands of people put their faith in Jesus. Not because Peter was so eloquent, so skillful, but because of the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what the Holy Spirit continues to do to this day. Yes, the Spirit of God comforts us and strengthens us and supports us, but the Spirit of God also makes us uncomfortable because the Spirit of God convicts us of sin. And so if you've been experiencing a growing sense of your sinfulness especially your attitude towards God, your rejection of Christ. This is actually God's grace to you. This is the work of God's Spirit in you. I mean, the Spirit of God is like a doctor. He forthrightly and honestly tells us what is wrong with us. Not to embarrass us, not to condemn us, but to lead us to where we might find healing. To lead us to a solution. And this takes us to the second thing that the world gets wrong. Righteousness. That's what Jesus says. 
Now, righteousness is the term that the Bible uses to summarize what is required of us by God. To be righteous basically means to be in a right relationship with God. Now, what does the world get wrong about righteousness? Well, if you were to ask most people, what does it mean to be righteous? How do you find yourself in a right relationship with God? I think most people would say, well, you do righteous things. You get to work. And if you try hard enough, if you're a a nice enough neighbor, if you're a good enough citizen, if you even come to church occasionally, well, then God will accept you. I mean, you, you can basically earn your way into God's good books. But according to Jesus, according to the Bible, the answer is very, very different. And the standard is a whole lot higher. I mean, in Matthew 5, after Jesus has been describing life in God's kingdom, he says this. He summarizes it and concludes it by saying, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, you want to be righteous? You want to be in a a right relationship with God? Just be perfect. Now, I'm sure, like me, you're probably thinking, well, if perfection is the standard, then who can possibly meet it? And of course, the answer is, there is only one. And there has only ever been one. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. This is actually the idea behind what Jesus says in verse 10. When he says, the Spirit will prove the world to be in the wrong about righteousness. And then he goes on, and it's a little bit um, peculiar. He says, because I am going to the Father. Now, when Jesus uses this phrase, because I'm going to the Father, he uses it as shorthand to describe all that he's about to do, to go to the cross, to rise again, to return to heaven. And through these events, the cross, the resurrection, and Jesus' return to heaven, it's as if God is saying to us, this is the one that I accept. This is the only and truly righteous one. This is the one who can enter into my presence. And the Holy Spirit helps us to see that not only is sin deeper than we ever dreamed, but also that righteousness is higher than we ever imagined. And the Holy Spirit helps us to see in that moment that our own righteousness, it does not even come close to perfection. It does not even compare to Jesus. And so the Spirit then leads us to abandon our false, flimsy efforts to try to save ourselves, to try to be good enough. And the Spirit leads us to flee to Christ, to turn to Him, the only one who is truly righteous. And when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, the Bible says that we receive His righteousness as a gift. It's credited to us. We are covered. It's what the Bible calls the great exchange, substitutionary atonement. Christ's righteousness becomes ours. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul, he prays this, which is the heartbeat of Christianity. He prays that I may be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from obedience but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I mean, the heart of Christianity, it's not to offer your flimsy, false self-righteousness to God and hope that, that you've done enough good 
to, to weigh in your favor. Now, the heart of Christianity is to wholly and totally put your faith in Jesus and to receive his righteousness as a gift, to receive a right standing with God through faith in Jesus. This is why J. Gresham Mason, who was a, a distinguished theologian in the early 1900s, on his deathbed, he cried out, I thank God for the righteousness of Jesus. That is something that only a person with the Spirit is able to say. This is also what led to the Reformation. I mean, Martin Luther, the German theologian, he wrote in 1505 that he hated God because he understood that God demanded righteousness from us. And he just couldn't do it. He couldn't measure up. But then one day he was reading Romans and he got to chapter 1, verse 17, and the Spirit opened his eyes. I mean, it, this verse jumped off the page, it jumped into his heart. This verse that says, For in the gospel, the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And he understood in that moment that it's not about our righteousness that we offer to God, but it's about Christ's righteousness that we receive by faith as a gift. The Holy Spirit is at work in the world to open our eyes to our sin, to help us to see that it's deeper than we ever dreamed, but also to magnify Christ's righteousness, to point us to him, which we can receive through faith. And as Jesus goes on to say, the Holy Spirit is also at work in the world to show us the truth about judgment. Now, what does the world get wrong about judgment? Well, I think the world basically commits two errors when it comes to judgment. The first is to write it off as irrelevant. To simply say, well, God wouldn't judge anyone. God is love. Or to say, well, judgment, that's an outdated, primitive idea. We don't believe that anymore. But you see, the Bible, and especially Jesus, repeatedly talks about the certainty of God's judgment. Not because God is hateful, but actually because he is loving. I mean, God's wrath is not a cranky tantrum. It is his settled opposition to sin. The sin that is destroying the world and the people that he loves. And the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see the certainty of God's coming judgment. And not just God's judgment in general, but God's judgment on our sin. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see that we rightly deserve God's wrath for our rebellion and our rejection of him. But this leads us to the second error that people commit when it comes to God's judgment. And that is to conclude that it is inescapable. I mean, people will say sometimes, God couldn't love me. God couldn't forgive me. If I walked into a church building, the walls would fall down. Now, why do people think this way? Why do they assume that they're the exception? That their sin is more powerful than God's grace? Well, the fact is, this is the lie that humanity has believed from the very beginning. Right back in the Garden of Eden, the devil enticed Adam and Eve to sin by casting doubt on the goodness of God, by questioning the trustworthiness of God. 
He said, did God really say? And this is the lie that the devil has been peddling ever since. That God is not good, that God cannot be trusted, that God is against us. But you see, now that Jesus has come, and especially now that Jesus has died in our place for our sin and rose again, the devil, Jesus says in verse 11, has been condemned. He has been shown up to be a liar. I mean, through all that Jesus has said and done, and especially what he's done on the cross, we can know with absolute certainty once and forever that God is good, that God is trustworthy, and that God is for us, not against us. And the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see this beautiful reality, that our sin is deeper than we ever dreamed, that righteousness is higher than we ever imagined, but it can be ours in Christ through faith. And yes, that God's judgment on sin and evil is certain, but it's also escapable because Christ bore our judgment on the cross. And so the Spirit is at work in the world to open blind eyes, to lead us to Jesus and to fill us with hope. And as confused and as grief-stricken as the disciples would have been, I'm sure that this must have brought them comfort. Jesus was about to leave them. They were about to go into a world that hates them. But here Jesus tells them that they will not be alone. The Spirit will be at work. And it's the same for us. As we go into the world, we are not alone. The Spirit of God is at work. And this is great news because it means the pressure is off. Now we have a responsibility as we bear witness to Jesus in this world to be faithful to sow seeds, to show love, to share the message. But at the end of the day, God's responsibility is to bear fruit, to open blind eyes, to soften hard hearts, to change lives. And so what this means is that this should lead you to pray like crazy, to pray for the Spirit of God, to open the eyes of those you know and love who don't know Jesus. It should also lead you to give thanks to God, I mean, if you are a Christian, this is what the Spirit has done in your life. It's opened your eyes to see your sin and to see the glory of Jesus. This is how the Spirit is at work in the world, Jesus says, to prove the world wrong about sin, about righteousness, about judgment, and to point us to Jesus. But the Spirit, Jesus goes on to say, is not just at work in the world. The Spirit is also at work for the church. This is what Jesus says next in verses 12 to 15. He says, The Spirit will point us to the truth. The Spirit will point us to the truth. This is what he says, verse 12. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. I mean, all that Jesus is about to do on the cross and through his resurrection and all that it means, the disciples couldn't bear it at this moment. But something would change, or more correctly, someone would come to help them. Is what Jesus says, verse 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. When the spirit comes, he will guide the fearful, confused, anxious disciples into all the truth. And not all the truth about everything in the world, but all the truth about Jesus. Everything that matters about Jesus. This is what Jesus goes on to say in verses 14 to 15. He says, He will glorify me 
because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. Now there's a sermon right there. He says, that is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Now what I want you to notice is that the role of the Spirit is to glorify Jesus, to point us to Jesus, to magnify Jesus. J.I. Packer, the theologian, he famously described the Holy Spirit as like a floodlight. Now, if you go to see the Sydney Opera House at night, you will see that it is lit up by a bunch of floodlights. Now, here's what you don't say uh, when you go to see it. You don't say, wow, they are amazing floodlights. I've got to get up closer to those floodlights and, and, and see more about them. Now you say, wow, isn't the Sydney Opera House amazing? See, the Holy Spirit lights up Jesus, points us to Jesus, puts the focus on Jesus. The Holy Spirit has even been described as the shy member of the Trinity because he does not draw the attention to himself. He draws attention to Jesus. And this means that wherever you find Jesus to be central, the Spirit will be near. It means to be Spirit-filled, whether in our lives or in our churches. It means we will be Jesus-centered. And so when the Spirit comes, He will not guide the disciples into new spiritual truths. He will not give them a new curriculum. He will not change the message or the mission. No, he will continue Jesus' message and Jesus' mission. He will guide them into all truth about Jesus. Now it's important to notice that this is primarily a promise to the disciples. It's a promise to guide them and inspire them as they would write down the truth about Jesus in the documents that would become the New Testament. I mean, this is primarily a promise of inspiration as the disciples write the Scriptures. But this doesn't mean that it has no application for us because the Spirit continues to guide us into truth about Jesus as we go deeper into the Bible. I mean, whenever we open up the Bible, we hear God's voice and we receive God's truth. To put it another way, through the Word of God, the Spirit of God speaks to us about the Son of God to the glory of God. I mean, we should not divorce or split the Spirit and the Bible. The Spirit inspired the Bible and the Spirit speaks to us through the Bible. Now, to read the Bible, it certainly is an educational process. We will learn more about God as we should. But to read the Bible, this means it's also a relational process. It means to get to know God, to hear His voice, to commune with Him. And if this all seems a little bit ordinary to you, if you would like something a bit more spectacular, if you think we need a new spiritual method or spiritual message, let me put it to you this way. When I say to my wife, Molly, I love you, that's not new information to her. I've told her that many times before. And yet she never complains when I tell her again because it reassures her, it makes her feel secure. Well, it's the same with us as God's people. Our sin and our suffering gives us reason to wonder whether God will continue to love us, whether God still loves us. But every day, if we will only listen, if, if we will only open up the word of God, God reassures us of his love for us. I mean, Jesus loves his people so deeply that he went to the cross and he rose again for them. 
He ascended back to the Father from where he reigns and rules. He poured out his spirit upon the disciples to lead them into all truth about himself, to help them spread the gospel and to see it go to all corners of the globe. And here we are today as proof that the Spirit is alive and at work in the world, as proof that all that Jesus said has come to pass. And so let's play our part in this ongoing story. Let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and let's keep in step with his Spirit for the glory of God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son to go to the cross in our place for our sin and to rise again. Thank you for pouring out your Spirit to empower us to know you, to love you, and to be near to you. Lord, where there is sin in our lives, would you open our eyes to it? And would you then fix our eyes on Jesus, on all that he's done for us? And would you fill us as we go into the world that we might go, Lord, with your message on our lips, with your love in our heart, as we continue to play our part in the ongoing mission to see your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let me pray this blessing over you from God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.